So you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah. I'm not going to read all 66 chapters. I did that like three times this week. And while I think, Daniel has said this, I think it'd be best if we could just all read every single verse that we're talking about here. But there's just not time. So I'll say the same thing that he said. If you want to go read Isaiah, just go read all of it. 66 chapters, I think it's the second longest book. No, yeah, other than Psalms, like word-wise. Like, it's... It's big, and there's a lot of message in there, but there's a lot of really good stuff. And um, I'm actually going to talk more about how my perspective on the way God acts in Isaiah, how my perspective on that has changed over the last few years. Because I was actually talking about this with a coworker this week, because I just started doing video at ETSU. And uh, one of the things that... Uh, I got to do this last week was I got to go film kind of a preview of Grayscale, which is ETSU's a cappella group. Uh, they were singing, a, they're, they're get, they have a concert coming up, so we were shooting a video of them just singing a song that we could put out on YouTube kind of as a preview. Hey, come see the show, that sort of thing. And I've had this song stuck in my head all week. And I was talking about it with several different people, and I said, I had never heard that song before. And that's everybody's reaction. You had never heard Shut Up and Dance before? Like, I think I was talking to Michael last week, and he said, I can't escape that song. Like, that song is so... I'm like, here's why I had never heard... I know every word to every Doc McStuffins song. I know all the princess songs right now. I'm kind of in this, this, this phase of my life where I'm going to know the Disney Junior stuff but I'm not going to know like the top 40 pop stuff, right? I remember when I was a kid, that was probably us just singing Lion King on repeat, you know, or Aladdin, either one, you know, they're kind of interchangeable. But, but like I'm in this period of my life right now where a great deal of what I am involved with is parenting a three-year-old, which if you've done, you're like, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's, it, it takes up a lot of your attention, a lot of your focus, a lot of your time. Um, and I know for me, I struggle with like a lot of situations. How am I supposed to be reacting here? Is this the I let this go or is this the I can't let this kind of thing slide? Or, or is this actually something that she's doing wrong or is it something that I just haven't taught her that is something she's not supposed to do yet? Uh, lately, a lot of I think my biggest struggles have been around bedtime because if you know anything about me, I like to think of myself as a somewhat gifted debater. You may ask my wife about this later, or my mom, or my dad, or anybody who has been in my life for more than about 10 minutes. I can exp I, I, and you can, and you can issue me some sort of mental challenge and I will explain to you why you're wrong and I'm right and I'm really happy to do that for you. Just to demonstrate a little bit of what God's gifted me with. Um, my daughter, my, I'm going to say my, big quotes, my daughter, because that's how, that's how this part comes across. My daughter has also been given this gift. In fact, we were out of town last week and she got to spend not one, Two nights and three days with mom and dad. And we got a text Saturday morning, I think it was, that said, 
she absolutely should be a lawyer. Because she absolutely has, I'm trying to remember what the word was you said. Um, it was, she's like a master negotiator maybe. Like what she'll do if you, when it's bedtime and you've gone through the whole routine, you know, get her bathed, get her dressed, get her teeth brushed, read a book, say prayers, get her in bed, turned off the lights, walking out the door. Wait one second. I just need, I, I just need one more hug and one more kiss. From daddy too. I need to go potty. I need a hug and a kiss. Wait, 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 wait. One, one more thing. One more thing. And, and we've been dealing with just kind of this struggle of, okay, how do we teach her that when we say it's time to go to bed, it's time to go to bed? And what things, what things are actually like, like actually her rebelling against us and what are things that we have to punish and what are things that we have to like you know teach her hard lessons because sometimes she just gets to talking and you're like just just just, just, just. I did that she's just gonna smile at me this whole sermon I can already tell because I'm basically just gonna preach to myself I have to figure out in this phase of my life what is actually sin and what's just like teachable moments. And I have, to, I have to know how to kind of guide her along this path toward becoming the type of person that I would want her to become. I can't just leave her to her own devices. Um, if you, it, I'm just thinking of like at the football game yesterday. There are some kids whose parents tend to leave them to their own devices. And it results in not what I would think they would want of their kids behavior-wise. But because I, and, and because I, I have this goal in mind, because I, have this, because I have this book that tells me what it is that I'm supposed to grow up to look like, I want to instruct my daughter on how I want her to grow up and what I want her to look like, how I want her to behave when she gets to a certain point in life. And sometimes she's going to push back against those things. She's going to be resistant to those things. She's going to be resistant to bedtime. She's going to be resistant to walking three steps this direction. Just because she likes to be in control. Just because like all of us, yeah, you're getting, you're getting called out. Because we all like to be in control. We feel comfortable being in charge. We've had this discussion before with her. Who is in charge? I want to be in charge. You're not in charge. Why, are my, why am I not in charge? Because God put me in charge. And God's in charge of me, so I listen to him and you listen to me. Right? But because I've been given this task, because I have this goal in mind for what I want her to become, there are going to be times when she's pushing back against me or times when she's going off and trying to do things that she knows I've told her I don't want her to do that course correction is required. Bringing her back to what it is that she's been taught up to this point is required. And that doesn't mean that's something that she's going to enjoy. It's not, it's not even something that I enjoy. Like I'm not sitting here thinking, oh boy, I get to punish somebody today. Right? That's like the, that's the, that's the hardest, that's the hardest, 
I understand now that whole cliche has hurts me more than it hurts you, right? Like we say that, you're like, no, no, I think this is hurting me pretty good right now. But I understand the struggling emotions that, that I assume, I can only assume that God feels, especially when we get to the book of Isaiah. Because like Daniel talked about last week, and he was kind of focused on the northern kingdom where Jonah was ministering. By this point, Israel's hearts had become so divided over whether or not they were going to follow God that they had become physically divided as a people, right? You, they, they cannot coexist as one nation anymore under the rule of God because they are so wanting their own control to do their own things and to try to provide their own means of protecting themselves, which is one of the biggest downfalls in Israel's history, is that instead of looking to God for their salvation, when things got tough, when, when superpowers were rising up all around them, they said, instead of believing that God is going to be able to take care of us, let's go make alliances with all these wicked kings who are around us, and perhaps they will be able to protect us. Because certainly, we don't believe that God's going to be able to protect us. And the northern kingdom of Israel was, was making some of these alliances. And they were trying to encourage Judah, the southern kingdom, where Isaiah ministered. They're trying to encourage them, you need to go make some alliances. Go, go, go down to Egypt and maybe, maybe make a deal with Pharaoh. And maybe he'll be able to protect you. But what happened for Israel during this time is that all of these superpowers, particularly the Assyrian Empire, was just too strong. And so, and so the salvation that they were looking for the salvation that they were running to was unable to stand up. And I don't want to get too far ahead in Israel's history, but I want you to know where their mindset was. They were looking for option, option B. Not, not just trust that God's going to be able to take care of them, but that instead we can find our own salvation from all of the surrounding terror just by looking to these physical kings who are all around them. And, and God saw that this was their mindset. God, God saw the sin that they were in and, and, and as a result of being in that sin that they had lost sight of who he was and they were now looking to other nations for their salvation. One of the kings in the southern kingdom, Uzziah, actually had a heart for God. Like he desired to follow God. But, but even he was not willing to go through all of the pain that it would take to destroy all the idolatry that had taken root in Judah. All of the wicked behavior, all of the sin. It wasn't completely eradicated. And God still saw that his people were, were, were running away from him. And so, and you can read all about this in 2 Kings. Uh, the section where Uzziah becomes king and some of those surrounding situations is in 2 Kings chapter 15. We're not really going to read a lot. We're not going to read any of 2 Kings or any of the actual history of it today. I want to focus more on what God had to say to his people. Because, because what God does, and, and, as we, and as we saw with Jonah last week, God's going to tell him, go tell these people that I'm really tired of their sin and I'm going to do something about it. That's a lot of what the message of the prophets ended up being. Go tell them I'm angry and go tell them I'm going to do something about it. Go, go tell them that, that punishment 
is coming. You know, if, if I, you know, when you're, like, dealing with a three-year-old, like, and I, the only reason I do this is because my parents did it, and I roll my eyes when I think about the fact that I do this now. Counting to three is a very effective means of threatening punishment. Counting to three is basically 66 chapters of Isaiah, okay? This, this, is, this is God counting to three with his people. I want you to stop doing what you're doing now, or I am going to punish you. That's the message. And, and, and it's so funny because it's the, the moment I start counting to three with Ellie, she immediately, there's like two options. One, she either starts doing the thing that I want her to do, or she just goes ahead and starts crying as though she knows she's been spanked. <laughs> she's like, you're going to spank me and it's going to hurt. And I'm like, not if you stopped. But now I've gotten to three because you're trying to explain what was going to happen when I got to three. Which is kind of the mindset of Israel on a lot of this. God says, I'm going to judge your sin. And it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be just like a, come on, sit down here on my knee and let me have a talk with you. It's, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to eradicate the sin that is in your lives by whatever means necessary. And instead of turning from their sin, they say, I don't like that you're going to do that. So instead of listen, it's, let me give you another way. Maybe you don't punish me. Maybe you don't do this. Maybe, maybe we'll just go talk to these other nations and protect us from the judgment that you're saying you're going to send us into. You can go ahead and start turning to Isaiah chapter 6 because what's going to happen is God's going to go ahead and begin to warn Israel about what's going to happen. He's going to lay out the whole plan. He's going to tell them everything that's going to happen, how he's going to do this. And he's going to do it through a guy named Isaiah who was a resident of Jerusalem he was probably wealthy or at least well-connected because a lot of his message is said to the king. Go and tell Uzziah this. Go and tell Hezekiah this. Go and tell whoever the ruler is at the time. Just go talk to him. So he's obviously connected well enough that he can walk in to the court of the king and say, this is what God has to say to you. But the most important thing about him, and we're about to find out, is he had a realistic view of who he was and a realistic view of who God is. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, this is how he was introduced to his, his um, ministry from God. I'm going to read chapter, uh, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew down to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So what can we learn from the character of Isaiah 
in these verses here? Well, the first thing is that I think we need to understand how to be in the presence of God, what it's like to be in the presence of God. Because the moment that Isaiah saw what he saw and heard the things he heard, he said, I should not be here. There is no reason for someone like me. I am a wicked person. I have said bad things. I have done horrible deeds in my life. I am offensive to God. There is no reason that I should be here. I, what does he say? Whoa, I am undone. Like, like, I am in the presence of God. He sees me for exactly who I am. There is no reason that I should be allowed to be here. I'm, I'm dead. This is it. This is where God's just going to kill me. He's going to say, look, I'm God. You're not done. He understood how awestruck. He saw, he saw the glory of the throne room of God, and he had this moment where he said, I should not be here. He was filled with such humility, such shame over who he was. And I think we as a people, we as a church, we today can take the idea of stepping into the presence of God lightly. There are lots of rules that we could put on how you come to worship, right? Like we say, you have to dress a certain way, you have to sing a certain set of songs, or you have to read a certain version of the Bible. And those are the things that I think kind of cloud our view of worship. Like, like those are not the things that are helpful to how we worship. But I think when we come together as the church, we're told that where two or more of us are gathered, like God's presence is there with us. And if there's anything that we see by his... By, by the description of his presence here and how overwhelmed Isaiah was as he stepped into that presence, it's that we need to be realistic about whose presence we're stepping into. And we don't need to come to this place flippantly saying, well, I'm going to go to church today and I'm going to sing the songs and I'm going to take a few notes so that I can talk about them in CG. We need to approach humbly the presence of God. We need to come knowing who we are and knowing, like Isaiah did, that we don't deserve to be in the presence of God. And that by being in the presence of God, we're basically admitting that we are wicked, sinful people. We're like, you see me for who I am. I'm sorry you have to look at this. That's basically the heart of Isaiah as he steps into the presence of God. So he understands what it's like to be there. And we, and we need to see God for who he is, right? Like he is holy, holy, holy. He is, you know, we talked about how Moses spent so much time in the presence of God to the point they had to cover his face because he was shining so brightly having been in the presence of God. We need to have a right view of how big God is, how holy God is, and how incomprehensibly good God is. Because what's the first thing that happens to Isaiah after he enters the presence of God and humbly realizes that he has no reason to be there? He does not deserve to be there. The first thing that happens is God sends an angel over there to touch his lips and say, I've made you clean. I've done this for you. He doesn't, he doesn't try to say, well, let me reason with God as to why it's okay that he doesn't kill me right now. He doesn't try to come up with a let me explain to you why I've been a good person. And maybe, maybe there's not some, some reason that you should kill me right here in front of you. And his humility results in his redemption. He doesn't try to make himself right with God immediately. He says, 
I'm done. Game over for me. This is it. I can't do a thing. And then God sends, God steps in and he says, look, I am going to make you clean. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. These are things that are happening to him passively. He is not getting rid of his guilt. He is not atoning for himself in any way. God is interceding on his behalf. God is doing something for him. And then Isaiah says, okay, if you're not going to kill me, if you're not going to send me out, do something with me. That's his immediate, God says, who's going to go? And he says, well, I guess that's me. Because you, you've, you've saved me for something. You've saved me for a reason. And so God says, here's the message that I want you to take to my people. We'll pick up here in verse 9. And he said, go and say this to my people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? That's very different from what happened with Jonah, right? Where he said, go take this message to these Ninevites, these people who are wicked, these people who are sinful, these people who are not the people of God. Take this message and tell them to repent, and they will. But, take, but then today he says to Isaiah, take this message to my people, but they're not going to hear it. Their hearts are going to be dull. Their ears aren't going to work. They're not going to see the things that you're saying. You're going to speak truth to them, but they're not going to comprehend it. Why? Because God doesn't yet want them to turn and be healed. He doesn't want them to yet get past this. He wants them to see the full effect, the full result of what their sin entails. He wants them to feel the loss that comes from fighting against running away from God. He wants them to understand this. So what can we learn about the nature of God? First, that he is decisive. He's not wishy-washy on this. There are lots of times where we'll be, like at night, we'll be sitting on the couch. Ellie will have just gone to bed. I'm back to this metaphor, yes, because, because man, it works. We'll be sitting in there, and we won't have been sitting down but for maybe a minute. Daddy! Daddy! I can't find my water! I need my water, I'm thirsty! And I have to look at Tiff and I'm like, okay, how do I respond to this? Do I just leave her uncomfortable and dying of thirst? Do I just go give her her water? Do I help her find it? Do I give her water but, but tell her there's going to be some consequence for not going to sleep like she's been told to? I'm not sure how exactly I'm supposed to handle these situations. God doesn't struggle with that. God says, here's how I'm going to deal with this sin. And he's decisive, and he doesn't go back on what he says. He says, I'm going to do this to my people so that they can see the result of their sin. So he's decisive. And we see that he's not desiring to change hearts yet. Because later on, Isaiah says, long, and he says, and this is in verse 11, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. 
when it is felled. So, so he's saying, until I completely take them out. Until they are completely removed from this place. Until I have decisively punished them. Until they have seen the anger that their sin has put in me. That's basically what God is saying. He has to move against their sin. But what we're going to see, and you can go ahead and start turning back to chapter 1. See, I could read all of chapter, all chapter, all the 66 chapters of this book, but what I found is if you just read all of chapter 1, you get all of the book. Because a lot of this is probably, most of the writing of this down is probably somebody who came back later or was there with Isaiah and wrote down all of the things that he said. And what you're going to see is, it's going to, the first verse of chapter 1 says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He's saying, he wrote all this down, and it's really handy because this first chapter is a good summary of the whole message of Isaiah. So I want us to get a picture, a clear understanding of what it is that God is having Isaiah say. And, and what's great is God's going to go ahead and map out the next however many hundred years of Israel's history. Here's how I'm going to deal with this. And then ultimately, what he's going to do with them after that. So let's pick up here in verse 2. I'm just going to read this whole chapter because I think it's helpful. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He's saying, you are completely broken. From the bottom of your foot to the top of your head, there is nothing in you that is not wicked. Let's keep going. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, who God totally wiped out. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So, in a sense, God's being a little bit sarcastic. He's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah so that they can think back to how wicked those places were and realize that this is how God sees them at this point. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's saying, I don't care that you're still going through the routine of being my people. I don't care that you're still attending church. I don't care that you're still raising your hands when the worship music plays. I don't care that you're still giving your offerings and your tithes. I don't care that you're coming up and taking communion. All of those things are actually offensive to me because your hearts are not for me. They are done in vain, and because you are still going through them, he's almost saying, you're slapping me in the face every time you pretend to be my people, though in your hearts you are not my people. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Don't be so focused on yourselves, start caring for other people, look outside of who you are and see that there is need and go and meet those needs. Don't be so self-centered. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat, of the, eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what he's saying is, I am going to punish you decisively, completely. I'm going to run you out of this place. But you're not Sodom and Gomorrah, who I completely abolished. I completely wiped off the face of the earth. You are not them. And he, and he immediately reminds them that there is hope in following him. The punishment for them was more than just exile, right? They were taken out of the land that God had given to them. But symbolically, they're also being taken out of the presence of God, right? The temple that Solomon had built was God's house. The presence of God dwelled in that land with his people. So what God is saying is, by sending you out, by running you out of town, not only am I removing you from your home in this place that is yours, but I'm removing you from me. I'm separating myself from you, and I want you to feel distance between ourselves that is not a feeling unlike what Christ felt when he was on the cross when after all the torture that he had gone through when all of the sin of the world was placed on Christ God looked away from him his presence was removed from Christ for the first time in their existence they had always existed in perfect community perfect harmony but as he took the weight of all of our sin on him God looked away he was he was offended by the sin that Christ was taking on himself for us. And I think that was probably his most desperate moment when he was removed from the presence of God. And what God is saying is, that's what I'm doing to you. I'm removing you from my presence. I want you to feel what it feels like to not have this perfect community, this perfect harmony with me, this perfect ability to walk into my presence and be with me. Because you've, you, you've, you've so taken for granted your ability to be with me. Right? He says, what's the trampling in my courts? Y'all just wandering around, offering sacrifices just because you think that makes me happy and it'll keep you going? Kind of doing it out of superstition. That's not the point. 
He's saying, your, your hearts have already left me, so I'm going to push you out of here so that you can see what it really feels like to not be in my presence anymore. But he gives them hope. He said, there will be redemption. It doesn't, it doesn't just end with me sending you out. You don't stop being my people, right? He, did, he said, I'm not wiping you out like Sodom and Gomorrah, though you have behaved that way. But did Israel understand why God was doing this? I don't think they saw it in this moment. I mean, I think back to like, okay, so whenever I get to three, sometimes this results in a spanking. Some of us have may, may, have, may have experienced one of those ourselves at some point in life. Whenever Ellie gets a spanking, she is usually quick to inform me that I am mean and that I hurt her and that that's not nice. And that is how a great many of the people of Israel felt about this punishment. Well, that's mean. That's not nice. That's how some of us react when we read some of these Old Testament chapters about the wrath of God and how decisively he moves against sin. It's really easy to say, well, that's not very loving. That's not very kind. That's not very nice. I don't like that God. I don't want to know him. That's just mean. He's hurting people. He's, 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 he's the... He's the kid with the magnifying glass trying to burn the ants because he's so much more powerful, he doesn't need to do that. But what they don't see is that God is trying to refine them into a people whose hearts actually beat for him and don't fight against him. Because he says, I'm going to wipe away your sin. You're going to understand things new. You're going to be willing and obedient, right? That's what he said in verse 19. Willing and obedient. Like, like, that's a completely different place from where his people have been. Almost through their whole history. We keep coming back to this idea that they're like, I don't like what God's doing with us. I don't like the things that he says that we should do. I don't like that we're wandering around here. I, I don't like that we're out in the desert. I'm hungry. It'd probably be easier if we just went back to Egypt, right? We, we, we've talked about this kind of mentality where they, they keep looking at their current situation saying, well, God must not love us very much. Instead of saying... Look at what God has done up to this point, and look at what he's continuing to do to provide for us. You can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 43 if you want to. Because God's anger over their sin doesn't last forever. Ultimately, God is redemptive. Isaiah chapter 43, I'm going to read verse 3 through 7. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men a return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God says, don't worry. I love you. I'm punishing you because I love you, because I want something more from you, because I want something better for you. Don't, don't worry about whether or not I still love you. Don't think that this is a, I'm done with you, I'm sending you away, because God doesn't do that. He says, you are my people, and I'm going to do something for you. He will avenge them. In, in chapter 49, it says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. 
then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. He's saying, I will, make, I will take care of my name. I will take care of you for my name's sake. I will rebuild and restore you because of my name. And when the earth's finally seeing that he is, he is ultimately caring for and protecting and building up his people, then when we get to chapter 45, we see, we see what the real vision for God is, why he's doing this for Israel. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and 23 says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. He's saying ultimately, he's saying ultimately, what I'm doing with Israel is just a snapshot of what my desire is for all of creation. I am punishing you. I am refining you so that I can bring you back as my people. And then I'm going to do that same thing with the whole world. So everything that he's saying to Israel here in Isaiah, he might as well be saying to us right now. I don't want you to fake your worship. I don't want you to go through the motions of going and acting like my people, though your hearts are off chasing every single other thing that the world could offer to you that is offensive to me. He's saying those exact same things to us. And he's saying, I'm going to move swiftly and decisively against your sin, just as he did with Israel, as a means of refining us and making us into a people that would be willing and obedient to follow him. Turn to chapter 53. Because this is how he does it. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and whom has the arm of the Lord been and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with him and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord shall prosper on his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah saying, there is coming a time when God will send someone who will take all of this sin that, that, that you think that the blood of bulls and goats is, is covering, is taking care of. He's saying, that's not what's fixing anything, but there is one who is coming. And we know him to be Jesus. There is one who has come, who has taken all of that sin, who, who, who was rejected and despised by people, even though he was perfectly innocent, even though there was no wrong that he had done, even though he was the exact opposite of what the people of Israel and we are like. He could walk into the presence of God where Isaiah was called up in chapter 6, and he would not have to say, oh man. He could be there. Because he was perfect. He had done nothing. And yet it says, God decided to crush him. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God sovereignly crushed his own son. Punished his own son for our sin. So that he could make an atonement for us so that he could make us a redeemed people so that we could be reconciled to God so that we could be brought into the presence of God. We named our church Christ Reconciled Church because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that he was given the task of reconciling us to God. By his actions, we can be brought together as a people as the people of God, just like God did with Israel. He made them a nation. He made us by virtue of the action of Christ. It's by, by his willingness to take all of this punishment. Israel, Israel's punishment only lasted a little while. Christ's, Christ's suffering was complete. It took him all the way to death. God killed him. God had his own son murdered for our sake so that we could be his people and we could be redeemed and restored. And that is ultimately the message that God is trying to send to his people. Not that I'm going to punish you, not that I'm done with you because you have just sinned too much. I'm sure there are people, and I'm sure that we, when we face difficulty or when we face punishment or when we get rejected by somebody, we think this is it, this is the end, this is broken, it's finished. We, we, can, we, can, we can kind of focus in too tightly on the current situation. I'm sure if we had been in Israel's place when God was sending them out of the land that he had given them, we would have been saying, God must be done with us. But if you listen to the complete vision that Isaiah has given, the complete message of God, he's saying, I am sending you out so that I can bring you back as a stronger, more unified people who actually know and love and trust me. And that's the message that God has for us as a church too. Don't fake. Don't just go through this. Don't let your hearts run off all over the place. Know that I've already taken care of all of the necessary steps to make you a church, to bring you together. And all we have to do is humbly recognize, like Isaiah did, that if we are brought into the presence of God, we are undone because we are wicked and we are broken and we are sinful people. But it's by virtue of what Christ has done for us, 
on our behalf that we can come into the presence of God and be welcomed and be brought together as a family. Let's pray.